Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. Chriswell, yes, you have. Sure, you have. W. A. Chriswell was the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas uh, for I don't know, like 40, 50 years or so, and uh, was a, a, a very large church, a premier church, a flag church in the Southern Baptist Convention, for example. Uh, Dr. Chriswell was a great preacher, well known, uh, often studied, and uh, very, very expository in his preaching. I mention him uh, because when W.A. Criswell preached on Romans 9 through 11, uh, he entitled his sermon, The Hardest Passage in the Bible. Now, a couple of things that Dr. Criswell did with that. First, he preached all three chapters in one sermon and moved on. The second thing that, uh, that he did was he invited uh, his listeners to understand that when we're looking at Romans chapter 9 through 11, we are peering into the depths of the mystery of God's will, that we are trying to understand uh, how God works to choose us and to bring us to salvation, what the eternal dynamics of that have been. Uh, when we are looking at Romans 9 through 11, we're trying to get inside the mind of God. Now, it is a fact that God's thoughts are a little bit higher than our thoughts. And it's not only that, but God's thoughts are a lot deeper than our thoughts. So this is a very difficult passage to understand um, it's got a lot of theological intricacy. It's not a simple passage to understand. So by the end of today's sermon, you will understand it because I will have explained it. Or <laughs> you will at least know what the right questions are in that regard. But it is a difficult passage. We are looking at the depths of the mystery of God's will uh, in saving us. Now, before we read it, let me just point to one verse. It sort of illustrates some of the problem that, that, that we're going to have as we read this. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, and when we get to it, you'll know why he says this, but he says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now this brings me up short a little bit. As long as it's Jacob I loved, I'm with this verse. God is love. God loves everybody. Uh, I, and, and so to say God loves Jacob, well, that's just a, a particular instance of God's general love for everybody. And so we're, we're, we're fine with that. God loved Jacob. And Jacob was the one through whom God was working to bring the Messiah uh, into uh, world history. But he had to go on and say, but Esau I hated. And that's a little bit bothersome. It's bothersome because we thought God didn't hate anybody. We thought God was all about love and acceptance and, you know, happy things. And here it says, quoting God, I hated Esau. I hate Esau. But to understand that, we have to put it into its proper perspective. First, 
You remember that Jesus once said to those who came to him, he said, look, if you're going to follow me, he said this in essence, if you're going to follow me, you have to hate your father and your mother, your brothers, your sisters, your family. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you have to hate your family. Now, I've heard some secular wags who, who would say, ah, you see, Jesus said you, we should hate our families. That's obviously so wrong. How can you Christians follow Jesus? Jesus wanted to hate his family. Let's put it into context. Jesus often spoke in figures of speech and often spoke in hyperbole, and he spoke in parables. And that's what we have here, that word hate, when he says you've got to hate your family. It's almost like a parable form of a command. Because what Jesus was saying was this, if you're going to love him and follow him, our devotion must be of such an extent and so uh, linked up to who Jesus is that all other loyalties fade away. That there's no way to uh, really appreciate what our love for Jesus must be unless we understand that all other loves compared to it just are disqualified. They're almost like hatred, if you, if you will. So when he said, you've got to hate your family, he was saying, you can't have anything uh, before Jesus. Now, the reason he said that, I think one of the reasons he said that is we're always finding reasons to tell Jesus why he was wrong, aren't we? Jesus says, turn the other cheek, and we say, well, Jesus, don't you understand that I've done that already, and it doesn't work, and it, it's bad for my psyche? Yeah. When Jesus says things like, lay up treasures on earth, or, or don't lay up treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven, you know, you can't serve God and money at the same time. We say, yes, Jesus, love you, Jesus, but you're wrong on this one because you've got to take care of your family, and you've got to work, and you've got to have the good things of life, and this, that, and the other. And when Jesus says you've got to forgive one another, we say, absolutely, Jesus, we're with you on that one, except for a few people who are beyond, beyond help. You see, we're always explaining to Jesus why he is wrong. And when Jesus says, follow me, the first thing we say is, I'll follow you as long as that it doesn't get in the way of my family. And we'll trot out our family as if, you know, this is a valid excuse not to love Jesus, not to follow Jesus, not to serve Jesus. Families are wonderful things. Families are created by God. God has a whole um, plan uh, for families and how families can operate and glorify him and those kinds of things. So families are wonderful things, but you don't go to Jesus and say, Jesus, you know that, that discipleship thing, that follow you thing, that obey you thing? Uh, you're wrong about that, Jesus, because I've got family and family comes first. No, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to hate your family. And that's a way of putting a spotlight on the fact that there are no loyalties, no loves, no affections that come before our love for Jesus Christ. So in that instance, when Jesus said, hate your family, we understand what that means. It's a way of highlighting our love for Christ. You're tracking with me so far. Because if you're not, we're going to go over it again. Suddenly, everybody nodded yes. <laughs> okay. So when in Romans, we read that God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, understand what was at stake here. It is through Jacob, through um, uh, Jacob, who was later named Israel, it was through Jacob that God would work to bring about the coming of the Messiah who would save the world from its sins. And when God says, Jacob, I loved, he's not saying, you know, Jacob was like a really cool guy and you know, he, cute, talk about cute. I mean, Jacob's like really cute. And so I really love Jacob, but you know, this Esau guy, I mean, come on. I mean, talk about ugly. But uh, anyway, you know, 
No, what he is saying, saying is, Jacob, through whom the Messiah is to come, Jacob, through whom I will accomplish my eternal will and plan for the universe, that the Father would be glorified through the Son by the, Holy, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That plan that is going to be fulfilled through Jacob, I love Jacob because everything that I'm doing in Jacob's life is pointing to my plan to glorify the Son. And Esau, by comparison... Just by comparison, I hate it because the heart of God is to bring Messiah to a lost world. And that's what he did through Jacob. So at the end of this paragraph, we're going to read, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. And, and we make a mistake if we think that, oh, well, God was just playing arbitrary favorites. What we're really seeing is that God had a plan for his creation, and it's fulfilled in Jesus, and it was through Jacob that he was bringing that about. That's the love of God at work bringing Messiah to us. All right? Does that help? Thank you. All right, let's start at verse 6. Oh, and, and, and what Jesus, Jesus, what Paul is doing here is uh, uh, he's sort of answering uh, the objection that says, well, wait a minute, Paul, uh, it, it, maybe God made a mistake, like he tried to used the Jews. He tried to use Israel, and that didn't work out. Israel rejected the Messiah. I guess everything he had to say in the Old Testament was just a little misguided, and, and Paul is pointing out to his friend that, no, in point of fact, God has always been working uh, through the promise, and, and, and God's word isn't failing. God is accomplishing his, his purposes to bring Messiah uh, into history. So that, that's what re we're reading about here. So we start at verse 6. It is not as though the word of God had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, in so many ways we are a people who have lost our way. Our nation, our society, our culture, our world has lost its way. But even more than that, Father, we as individuals have lost our way. We have too quickly let the things of the world persuade us to move off the path of Christ. We have become too much enamored with the glitter and the glamour of the world. We've become too much in love with the things and the material possessions of the world. Father, we've accepted the shallow thinking of the world around us. And in all these things, we are a people who have lost our way. But I thank you that you sent Jesus Christ 
who is the author, the finisher, and the pioneer of our faith, that he is the one who has blazed the trail to bring us out of our sin and into your presence. Father, I thank you that in the footsteps of Jesus, we find the path that leads us out of darkness and into light. Father, that Jesus Christ himself is the way. So, Father, I ask that you would open our hearts and our eyes and, and, and our minds and keep us ever vigilant, that we would see Christ before us, drawn to walk in his footsteps, that our whole lives would bring us ever closer to you. And I ask it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, while the choir is coming down, let me just uh, do a little housekeeping. Uh, this afternoon, our kids are having an all-afternoon rehearsal, and I have been asked to personally take all the chairs and all the equipment down from the stage. How much do you love me, guys? <laughs> so, uh, those of you who have any compassion at all, <laughs> uh, if, you, if you could stick around just about four or five minutes after the service and... Uh, uh, help uh, take stuff down, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, this morning I want for us to look at privilege, performance, and promise. Because when you think about it, these are just about the three ways that people try to relate to God. Paul's imaginary friend had thought that being a Jew was a matter of privilege that just because of the lineage of his DNA, just because he could be found on the Jewish family tree somewhere, he thought that guaranteed his status with God as being acceptable. He thought it was a matter of privilege to come before God. Now, a lot of us are impressed with privilege. I know that you are. You ever been on an aircraft ride, an airliner, and, and you're, in, you're riding in coach, okay? This is where I ride, coach. And after the plane takes off, the stewardess walks up to the front. She gets to first class. She turns around, and she always looks at you, right, with that don't even think it look. And then she takes the curtains in. And you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, this is un-American. We don't have classes in America. Let's rise up. Let's, let's rush the class. There's more of us in coats than there are in first class. <laughs> we can take their ceramic plates and their metal silverware. We can all have orange juice. <laughs> Let us rise up. Although on one trip, uh, I, was, I was in coach, and the stewardess came to me, and she said, would you mind exchanging your seat with this gentleman? Um, he bought the last three seats, and one for his child, one for his wife, and one for himself, but he couldn't get them all together. Would you mind trading with him so that he could have a seat next to his wife? I said, where is his seat? She said, first class. I said, well, okay. <laughs> so I, I got up to sit in first class, and we take off, and we're, and we're going uh, you know, across, and the stewardess comes in. I'm looking back there, and she... And she comes and she goes to the curtain and she goes, Shh. and I'm thinking to myself, that's right. <laughs> you betcha. But we would like to think that our status, that we have some kind of privilege before God where we can just waltz in on the basis of a, of a prior claim. And the fact of the matter is there's only one class before God and that's called sinners. 
There's only one kind of person before God's holiness and his righteousness, and that is the class of sinners. And there is only one person who has the privilege of walking in to the presence of the throne room of God, and that's his son, Jesus Christ. But here's the glory of it. I can't wait for this. Okay, here's the glory of it. That when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you get there to the, to the, to the doors to walk into the throne room and the angels stop and you say, whoa, wait a minute, by what right do you come in? All you do is you say, I'm with him and you point to Jesus. And you walk in with Jesus because he has the privilege and he has the status. Now, a lot of the Jews of, the, of that day, of the New Testament era, a lot of them thought that they had a status because of their race, because of their background. And they thought that no matter what happened, God had to play favorites with them because they had that great privilege. But privilege distorts your life when you think that it's something that belongs to you. And privilege is something that causes you to look down on others or to look down on yourself when you're not in first class. Privilege is something that that just, just mutilates how life ought to really be until we know the one, only one who has the privilege before God, and that's Jesus Christ. So privilege was not enough. Paul's friend had said, Paul, we're we're Jews. That that should count for something. And what Paul said was, well, in point of fact, the righteousness of God is revealed quite apart from the law. The law talks about the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, but it is not given to you through the law. It's not given to you by being a Jew. Well, this is problematic. And so Paul's friend says, well, wait a minute, but at least I'm a good Jew. I keep the law. In other words, at least I have performance. And we live based on performance, uh, performance uh, tests of, of who we are and our value are all around us. You, you go to work and, and you get a performance review. And uh, if you're in school, you get grades and uh, you, you have people assessing, are you able to do this or not? And, and in social structures and circles, and you know, who's the star? It's the person who can do things, who can, you know, run faster, throw the ball or hit somebody harder, whatever it is. But we are, we are so performance oriented in our culture and in our society. Uh, you, you see it in young parents, and, and it's sad, but you see it in young parents, and it's usually just with the first child, but they start comparing their children. How is my child performing? The neighbor's child is three years old, and he's doing differential calculus, speaking three foreign languages. You know, what's with you, kid? <laughs> By the way, if that's you, stop it. Just stop it right now. Because for one thing, your neighbor's you know, who's, who's telling you how great their kid is, half of what they're telling you ain't true. And the other half is an exaggeration. And the part of it is, that is true won't matter in about two, three years. Your kid will catch up just fine. So let your kid be a kid and don't compare him with anybody. But we do that. You know, we're full of comparisons and comparing ourselves with others. And before God, we start this comparison thing. God, I am a sinner, but I'm not that bad a sinner. You know, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that tax collector standing over there who can't even lift up his eyes to pray. See, we're, we're all about these comparisons because we think we, we're, we're at least not as bad as others. We're, we're, we're pretty good folks. And when Paul's imaginary friend said, at least I've got the law and I'm keeping the law, and at least I'm a good Jew, Paul said, but didn't you read the ch- third chapter? I mailed it to you. You didn't get it? There is none righteous. No, not one. 
And later on, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one whose performance is enough to deserve God's love, grace, and salvation and mercy. See, performance is a great way to destroy a relationship. Just make performance the basis of the relationship. I love you as long as you measure up. Of course, she's coming back and saying, I'll love you as long as you measure up, and then you're gone because neither one of you can measure up. Performance is a terrible way to raise a child that, you know, I, I will love you, I will accept you as long as you, you know, get, get a certain level of attainment and success or as long as you're good at sports or, or good in, in school, as long as you... I, look, folks, when you love your children, just love them. The only condition is that they have to take care of you in your old age. That, that's the only performance issue that's allowed. It's there in Leviticus. See, now that John has children, he's starting to tell them. <laughs> but, uh, but performance is not how we come before God. Paul says it's not privilege and it's not performance, it's promise. It's what God has done. It's, it's a promise of God that he initiates. It's not something that we could force him to do. It is something that he, out of the depths of his love and mercy and who he is, he does for us. It is the promise of the Messiah that saved the saints of the Old Testament. It's the reality of, of Messiah and the promise of salvation in him that saves us today. It is the promise of God. It's all of God, not of us. And that's what Paul is trying to get us to see in this passage of Scripture it, when we start reading at Romans 9, 6. I want you to turn with me to that and, and let's look at it for just a moment. It says, first of all, it's not as though the Word of God had failed. It, it's, it's not as though God tried His best to save the Jews and they wouldn't do it. He, like, really tried to, 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 to bring about the conversion of the Jews and He can't do it. So now, plan B, He's gone to the Gentiles. So, no, the Word has not failed. This is what God has been doing all along. It's not as though it used to be law and now it's promise. It's not as though it used to be privilege, but now it's promise. He's going to say it's always been promise, not race, not heritage, not privilege, not status, not performance. So he says the word of God hasn't failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. The, the, the Greek uh, vocabulary here says that not all who are biologically descended from the man Israel. By the way, Israel's name originally was Jacob. So Jacob, Israel, same guy uh, in, in, in the course of things. In fact, let me, let me stop here and just do a quick uh, history lesson. All right. Most of you know this, but some of you may not. When you're, when you're talking about the great heroes of the Jewish tradition, you're talking about some folks called the patriarchs. And these are the first three guys who get the, the family of Israel rolling. First one is Abraham. Paul talks about Abraham in chapter 4. He says, what did, what did Abraham gain? Well, uh, God gave him the promise that all the worlds would be blessed through your offspring. And that promise uh, was believed by Abraham. Abraham believed that was counted to him as righteousness. And so it was the faith of Abraham that linked him up with the promises of God. So it starts with Abraham, and God makes this promise to Abraham. He says, look... I'm going to bless the world through your offspring, and the pro he'll say later on, and the promise was this, that Sarah will have this child through whom I'll bless um, the nations. It'll be through Sarah. Well, Abraham got to be pretty old, you know, like 62 or 3. <laughs> but anyway, he got to be pretty old, and he's looking at Sarah, 
and uh, they're, they're talking about it, and they say, you know, I don't think this is going to happen. And she was actually 90 or something. Said, I don't think this is going to happen. Uh, maybe we better help God along here. I've got this handmaid, uh, and, and her name is Hagar, and why you name a woman after a Viking, I don't know, but you know, here's Hagar, and Abraham, why don't you take uh, Hagar and have a child with Hagar, and maybe that's how we'll help God along in, um, in blessing the nations through our offspring. And so this is what Abraham does, and Ishmael is born. But then later on, God essentially says, well, Abraham, uh, no, that, that wasn't my plan. It was Sarah. I told you it was Sarah. And so Sarah conceives miraculously by the grace, the mercy of God. She conceives and she gives birth to a son. And that boy's name is Isaac. And it's through Isaac, not Ishmael, it's through Isaac that God works to bring Messiah into world history. And this is the promise of God, something he did. Didn't have to do it, but he did it to fulfill his promise to bring Messiah. Well, then Isaac... Uh, grows up and he gets married and he has, uh, among others, but he has a wife named Rebecca. And Rebecca conceives and she has twins. So she's expecting twins. And before the twins are born, before they've done anything to be up, down, sideways, indifferent, whatever it is, before they've done anything at all, God says, look, I'm going to have the younger twin be in the ascendancy. The older twin will serve the younger twin. And so when the twins are born, the younger one is named Jacob. The older one is named Esau. They are twin brothers. This means they have identical DNA. Um, they didn't think about it that way, but if you're going to track the offspring, they are as close to together on the offspring question as possible. But God chooses Jacob through whom he'll bring Messiah. Now, Jacob later on has his name changed to Israel. God changes his name to Israel. And Israel eventually has a son. One of his sons is named Judah. And that's how we get Israel and Jew uh, out of this lineage. So whenever you read um, uh, Israelite, Jew, you're going right back to uh, Jacob, which goes back to Isaac, which goes back to Abraham. Okay. Uh, we're all together on this. You've got the family chart, the tree going on. Okay. You need to know this. Where am I? Let's start uh, verse 7 again. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Not through Ishmael. Ishmael and Isaac are both offspring of Abraham. So as we're looking at it, either one would qualify. But as God's looking at it, he says, no, it's through Isaac. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. Says it's not because they happen to have a biological connection with Abraham. It's because God chose. It's God's election, not the, the, the will, as John says, the will of the flesh. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. In other words, the, 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 the lineage that we're looking at is not determined by uh, the, the biological whim of Abraham. It's determined by the choice and the mercy of the election of God. For this is what the promise said, this time next year, I'll return, and Sarah shall have a son. Okay, good so far. So Abraham receives the promise. Isaac is born according to the promise. Isaac is the child of the promise. Paul's friend says, hey, that's great, I get it. So anybody who's of the lineage of Isaac who has identical 
tracks because, yeah, we, we know that the, the, the offspring of Hagar won't qualify, but all the offspring of Sarah, now we're going to qualify. And Paul says to his friend, au contraire, mon frère. I apologize to anybody who speaks French. Not so fast. Verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, so he says she's expecting two children. They're identical in their, in their biological lineage, though they were not yet born and they had done nothing, either good or bad. So what you have are two identical offspring biologically who are equal in terms of morality. They've done nothing, good or bad. Either one looks like they would work. That's not the way God works. Right in the middle of verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. See that word purpose, by the way? So that God's purpose might continue. We know what that purpose is because Paul already told us. All things work together for good to, uh, for those who love God and are what? Called according to his purpose. That purpose is to conform us to the image of his son so that his son would bring many to give glory to the father. So the purposes of God is that God would be glorified, the father would be glorified by the exaltation of the son who brings many redeemed with him conformed, being conformed to the image of Jesus, the image of, of the Son of God. So this is the purpose of God. And so you've got Rebecca thousand years before this, and she's expecting twins in order that God's purpose to glorify himself through the Son by bringing sinners to himself and forgiving them through his righteousness, all these things, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who, what does it say? Calls. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's the calling of God that he's talking about. It's not our brilliance. It's not our righteousness. It's not our works and our deeds. It is the sovereign grace of God extended to us by his purpose of election, his purpose in choosing us to make us like Jesus, to glorify the Father. And he calls us for that purpose. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined and predestined, he called and called, he justified and justified, he glorified. So in order that it might not be works, might not be performance. We've already ruled out biology and privilege and status, but in order that it might be according to the purpose, God's purpose of election, because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. God was under no obligation to do this. It is pure grace. It is pure grace towards a lost humanity. And understand what God's election is doing. He is he is bringing Messiah to us to take our place, to die in our place, that our sins might be forgiven. This is his purpose. This is why he has called us. This is the electing purpose of God. And then to buttress that, we talked about this verse a moment ago. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He said, my purpose was so focused on bringing the son, Messiah, into the world that I would be glorified that my love for Jacob expressed in that purpose. By comparison, it looks like hatred to someone that's not being chosen for that. But it's God's grace 
God's sovereign will and election. Now, I wish I could help you understand this, but I don't. Because we're talking about the depths of God's sovereign mercy. If God's mercy made sense, I would not get mercy. If God's grace made sense, I would not get grace. If God's saving purpose for me was based on sense and logic, it would never happen. But then Jesus was constantly turning things upside down, the first, last. Those who die, they get to live. Those who give everything away, they're made rich. The poor should, should, are blessed, and the rich are, have, have woes. You know, Jesus never did get it right. He always had it backwards. But God's grace is so rich and has always been at work. So uh, Paul is saying to his friend, he said, look, what you have to understand, it was the promise of God all along. It never was performance. It never was privilege. It was always God's promise. And in a room this large, there might be a couple of people who really feel like privilege is their ticket to heaven. That, well, I've got a pedigree. Dad and mom went to church. Their dads and moms went to church. My family's been going to church for I don't know how long. I've got standing in the community. I'm a good person. Everybody says so. I'm likable. And we think that we have some kind of privilege. The only privilege belongs to Jesus Christ, not to us. And you're relying on privilege, but deep down you know it's not working. And deep down you know that all the great things that you're you're saying about yourself, that a lot of them aren't true. And you realize that you really don't have that privilege. And a lot of you might be relying on performance this morning. You're relying on the fact that, well... I know there are other people and they're really bad sinners in the world, but I'm, I'm not as bad. I've got a better performance record. But deep down what you understand is that you're not living up to the performance level that Jesus set for us. It was Jesus who said, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the passing grade. And you're living lives of frustration and you're li- living lives of, 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 of just... Um, uh, Weakness and, 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 and exhaustion because you're trying so hard to reach a level of performance. There's only one who satisfies God's righteous demand, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's why the promise is to all those who believe in Jesus. Who believe in Jesus. And so my encouragement for you this morning is, first of all, if you haven't asked Jesus into your heart as Lord and Savior, that you do so as the Holy Spirit brings that conviction on your heart and, and brings that, that, that assurance within your mind that Jesus Christ is Lord and is Savior, that you would just reach out in confession and embrace him as your Lord and Savior. And brother and sister in Christ, my, my plea for you is that you would stop living a life of religion that's looking for performance and privilege, but rather you would live a life based on the promises of God. And that those promises are sure, and they're never taken away. Because we live not by privilege or performance. We live by the promises of God. Let's bow for prayer together. And Father in heaven, I'm just so thankful that you have done everything necessary for us to know you. Father, that our salvation is not a combination of your grace and our works, but it's all your grace. 
Father, I'm thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit that brings a conviction in our hearts and our minds that this is the truth. The Holy Spirit who gives us the, the power to give our lives to Christ and the courage of faith. And so, Father, I pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us this morning and that your Holy Spirit would again connect us up with your promises and that we would live in the joyful glory of what you have done in Jesus Christ. Amen.